It was a lovely sunny afternoon when I sat down on my balcony to talk with our next Women in Sailing podcast guest, Adrienne Carlin, OAM. Adrienne's known worldwide as one of Australia's most accomplished navigators. She started sailing as a teenager and did her first Sydney to Hobart in 1984. In 1988, she started sailing professionally. She has navigated in multiple Whitbreads and round the world races. She was also the navigator on Nicorette in 1997, which broke the transatlantic record. In 2004, on a maxi catamaran, she achieved another record-breaking sail. Adrian has competed in over 27 Sydney to Hobart yacht races, with the greater majority of these as navigator. To achieve six line honours, a multiple of race records, and various overall and divisional wins. We chat with her about her journey from sailing skiffs to the transatlantic and the Whitbread and her progression onto the maxi yachts. As a proud member of Lane Cove 12 Foot Skiff Sailing Club and the Cruising Yacht Club of Australia, she continues to inspire many sailors and is a trailblazer for the sport of sailing. On top of all these achievements, she is an accomplished author, lawyer, meteorologist, as well as a mother of two, and continues to participate in offshore races every year. I'd like to welcome Adrienne Carlin. Hi, Adrienne. How are you today? Hi, Deborah. Where to start, Adrienne? Let's jump straight in, as I know there's going to be a, a lot of people out there interested in how you started in sailing. I was lucky to grow up in Sydney, uh, which is a great area where sailing's a, a fabulous sport here with lots of people involved. And uh, I grew up in Lane Cove um, in a suburb called Riverview, down in the Lane Cove River. So my family went to the beach and spent a lot of time around the river, but we, we weren't that sort of family that were at the sailing club, you know, early in life. So... Um, I, I just sort of got to know people in the area who, who were down at the Sailing Club and developed an interest in, in a laser. So, so I saved up and bought one. That was sort of, uh, I sort of also, when we we're on holidays too, I, I sailed, you know, like you often do, Hobies and things like that. Uh, and so, yeah, so what happened was I just started to get interested in my late teens, bought a laser and, um, and joined the local Sailing Club. So that was Lane Cove Twelfoot Skiff Club and I'm still a member there today so um yeah I had the opportunity just geographically of being in the right place at the right time really. So you mentioned saving up buying your own boat and starting later in life so teens you know instead of as a child on the dinghies. Yeah that's right a lot of kids do learn to sail when they're sort of six or seven or seven or eight but um you know, our family was very sporty. I was one of six children. So, you know, all the we were working class family. So, you know, th- my parents worked very hard to uh, to look after us and educate us and drive us to sport and music. So, um, you know, we tended to look after ourselves and follow our own path. Yeah. So yeah, my older sister, Marianne, was a very good water skier. And it was probably through my older brother, Paul, who who I really started to become interested in sailing because that's what he had started to do with one of the the um, guys in the street, John Shields. Yeah, so it was really the opportunities that came from where I grew up that uh, got me into sailing. And, you know, there's always sort of the freedom of it all that makes it so attractive. And then from sailing the skiff, your transition to kill boats? Well, no, it kind of all happened at the same time, really, because... Um, 
I joined the local club, but as I mentioned, there was a, a family in the street, the Shields, who went sailing down at Royal Prince Alfred every week, and um, he asked me to go along with um, some other people. And so I started to sail the Saturday races down at Royal Prince Alfred. Uh, and But at the same time, I was getting involved in sailing at the local club in some laser races. So kind of all happened at once. My interest into it, it developed really quickly. And uh, I was at university in, when I was 18 and um, started to go to TAFE at night times and study um, small craft seamanship and meteorology mm-hmm. and navigation. And, uh, and But at the same time, I kept saying the dinghy. So I started into 12s in after I'd done a few regattas into 12s sort of in my, you know, mid-20s. Um, but by then I'd already done my first Sydney Hobart because I did that in uh, 1984 when I was only 20. So I just sort of went at it with this voraciousness of couldn't get enough and wanted to uh, to, to to be involved at, at, in all parts mm. of the sport. And, um, you know, the, particularly to um, the CYC, I, I started to sail the Sunday races. Friends at uni invited me. The, the parkers invited me sailing on their boat on, on the Sunday afternoon races and that was when I started sailing with um, Norman Ridge mm-hmm. um, and uh, on magazine and he was the one that gave me an opportunity to do, to do my first ocean race, which was the Lord Howe Island race in 1984 and that was just absolutely marvellous. Um, and so, uh, yeah, Norman was really the one who, who set me on that ocean course and, um, and then I was... Uh, you know, once I'd got the taste for it, I, I then went down to the CYC and asked and asked and asked until a ride became available. And uh, a week before um, the Sydney Hobart, a crew dropped out on the boat Mystic 7. So um, I was able to be a part of that crew, six six people. Um, and it was a, a, couple, a couple called Neville and Val Gigi. Oh, right. Yeah. So, yeah. So I I, um, I sailed with them to Hobart. They'd both done sort of eight or ten Hobarts be between them, so I was in very good hands, and um, and we it was one of the roughest races on record. So, um, uh, you know, we ended up getting to Hobart on New Year's Day, mm. and uh, that was a great um, baptism of fire. Yeah. So, uh, what size yeah. boat was that one? You said six that was crew. Thirty-six. Oh, oh wow. A, yeah. Wow. So it was only a little one, six crew. Mm. So it meant I, w- I wasn't specialising in navigation in those days. That was pre-GPS. Mm. So, you know, that was involved sextants and. You know, all that type of all those skills are involved with the old navigating without um, electronics and satellites. And so um, Neville and Val were the two that did that, and I was the deck crew steering and you know changing sails, yeah. etc. Oh wow, yeah. that would have been fantastic. And then from there, the thirty-six footer. Uh, when was your next Hobart after that one? Well, interestingly, um, actually, after that first one, I didn't, in fact, set foot. Um, I did several ocean races in the middle um, with South Ports and, and various races yeah. like that. But uh, by then I was starting to get heavily involved in the 12-foot skiffs and, and then the 18-foot skiffs. So I was very much tied up with those commitments. Um, so it wasn't until 1990 that I actually did my next Hobart on a boat called Group Therapy. Um, and so that was both races, 1990 and 19. One, I sailed with group therapy. That was a fabulous crew. Um, that's why I first started to sail with Amanda Wilmot, who's done yeah. many races as well. Yeah. And um, and then so in 1992, you know, having seen what was going on, I thought um, I mentioned to my 18-footer sponsor, you know, it would be maybe a good opportunity to put an all-girls crew together. And uh, that was when um, 
Kira Good with Women on Water had her own team as well. So I got together um, a group of girls, and you'll recognise a lot of the names. Yep. Um, Vanessa Dudley, Kathy Hawkins, um, Gail Harland, you know, um, they've all done many, many Hobarts now, Sue Crafer, Lindy Hardcastle, Lindsay Marwood. We had a wonderful crew. Amanda Swan, who'd sailed in the 1990 bread with Tracy Edwards. And we sailed to Hobart on a um, Fire 40, which was beyond Thunderdome. So that was a baptism of fire. That was probably about it. Again, I know I keep using that word, but um, <laughs> as, as a skipper it was because uh, I learnt, um, you know, that, that that is a very difficult job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to be the skipper. Um, and it was a real testament to our team that we got there because a lot about the Hobart is getting there mm-hmm. and getting the boat ready for the race. So... That was a really um, – that we had a big some fabulous things associated with that. We had a, a great big party for fundraising and uh, another uh, colleague of ours, Christine Perry, brought a sponsor in. So, you know, we really did have a, a great team involvement. And, and um, so then, then in 93, I sort of started to look rather than inside Australia, started to look outside and saw a team putting itself together for the um, Whitbread race mm-hmm. and I – basically just contacted them and said I was interested to join. They went over and I did a tryout um, and then I there wasn't a spot for me but I hung in there and um, was able to get a spot for the transatlantic and then over that course of the transatlantic I was um, asked to be navigator because I think the skipper was navigating and it was too big a job for two of us. That was Nance mm. Frank. Um, so then I started to specialise in the navigation role um, which I hadn't done up until that time. All the previous Hobarts had done I I, except for the 92 one where I skipped it and navigated. But, um, yeah, so that's, that's how I ended up in 93. I just, I mean, a lot about getting these rides is is um, being in the right place at the right time and you've just got to go over there and sit and wait and show you're available and sit on the dock until the spot comes available. Um, because, you know, particularly in Australia, it's, it's tricky. You know, you're a long way away from all the big, you know, major rates, besides Sydney Hobart, but... Mm. Um, you know, certainly back in those days, you know, it was all happening in Europe and the States and, and you know, you really had to be there to be available because no one was going to ring you up in Australia and say, we're going to fly you over. That just didn't happen, you know, unless you're at the totally top of your game. So, you know, and that was for boys and girls. That wasn't just for girls. So mm. so that's how I ended up. And then and then once I did the Whitbread, then I was then got to know all the people on the other boats. You, you know, it was in 93, 94, it was very early days of computers, so, you know, you didn't – you were faxing. There was no email. Um, so when you went on the Whitbread, you were immersed in it. You weren't flying in and out like they do now with the yeah. Volvo. You actually stayed there uh, for the whole time. So um, you got to know that group or your peers in the Ocean Racing Network, and that probably really set you then on the course for the next um, 20 years of Admiral's Cups and around the worlds and being involved because you just knew – who everybody was, where you needed to be and had a much better idea of what was required in your specific role if you wanted to succeed in 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 firstly getting a position and secondly doing a good job in that position mm. and getting a good result for the for the vote. So that's how they came about and that's how my circumnavigations came about in ninety seven, ninety eight with Tracy Edwards and um and in 2004, and also, you know, it's it's been the other thing too is that you know it's you're not just there doing one race and leaving. You're you you're immersed in the whole scene. So you might be, you know, in the round the world scene as such. So, for example, in 2001, 2002, I was um, I was with Tycho's ashore crew, backing up, you know, in that Volvo race, and then in 
2005, 2006, I was with Brazil one, um, and and then in 2008, I wasn't sailing, but I was assisting the race office with timings in and out of port. So you know, it's not just always been about being on the water. You, there's so many roles that you can be involved in, not necessarily on the sailing team, but as parts of, of other parts of the crew. And supporting the team. Supporting the you team. Know, yeah, which is so great. I worked a lot with Ellen MacArthur um, mm. when she was getting, you know. So basically I sort of left the shores of Australia and I'd go and lose myself overseas for many months at a time and just be available and see what projects would come up at the time. So, yeah, it's a, it, was, it was lots of fun because you, it was a real adventure, not just on the water but off the water, you know, meeting new people, getting involved with new races. You know, I spent a lot of time with Luda Ringvall doing, on Nicorette doing um, round Europe races, which were fabulous. You know, you'd go from France to Germany to Holland to Norway to Sweden, you know. It was lots oh. of fabulous voyages to do. That would have been magical. From there, doing those races, how did you end up getting onto the big boats and, I mean, the maxis for Hobart? You gradually just got bigger and bigger in terms of like I started on a 36-footer and then by 1999, it's, it's a lot about the people who you sail with and, mm. um, and, the, and the opportunities that you're given. So, for example, in, in 1996, I put together a, a Whitbread 60, which was one of the biggest boats at the time, and I skivered that boat um, and we had all girls on that boat. So there were like Jenny Armstrong, Belinda Stoll, who were the two gold medalists, Vanessa again, mm. uh, Kerry Schimmeld. We had a lot of people again that were involved in 92. So that was a big boat. Then in 99 was Bumblebee. That was put together by Michael Coxon. In 2000 was my first liners. That was with Luda Ingvall, Nicorette. When he brought that out, he asked me. And that was 80 foot. So I sort of got on the big boats as the big boats grew bigger and bigger. So when the hundreds came out, and I came back from the Volvo. Um, the Oatley family asked me to join them um, as an, a part of the navigating team on that boat. So that was when I jumped into the hundreds, and then, and that was their sort of maiden. You know, that was around the time that they were getting involved there too. Uh, and so then I since then sailed with them from 2005 to 2012, and then was loyal after that. And Maxie mm. then. So you know, it, it, you sort of moved with the sport, if I can say it like that. You didn't sort of all of a sudden pop up and and jump on a big boat, you know, you, it evolved, the sport evolved, you evolved with it. Let's change tack, Adrian. You've had many opportunities racing on the big boats with a variety of crews from all around the world. So what are your thoughts on the introduction of the gender mix for the ocean race? I was so pleased when I saw that come in because a race that has certainly given me many opportunities to grow through the sport. Um, I, I think that it's very hard to get a ride on the Volvo now, whether you're a man or a woman. It's so specific. So I guess I was just a little bit selfish in seeing that if the opportunity there was for women to be involved, then that is just absolutely fabulous. And, you know, it's the same in the Olympic sailing now when they've got mixed crews. You know, I was a real supporter of that at World Sailing and, and very much supporter of the Volvo. I think, I think making it for every race is is something quite different because I think you've got to strike a balance between being too prescriptive and also um, getting and encouraging diversity. So I think that a boat owner should have the freedom in, in parts of the sport to put together the crew they want to put together. But there are areas in the sport where um, creating the diversity is a totally different um, 
it's a totally different sort of point of the sport. And so big public races like the Volvo, the Olympics, I, I think there's a great place there for encouraging diversity whichever way you can because it then filters down to the rest of the sport. I mean, just now after the last couple of Volvos with the amount of um, – girls are or women are, you know that I'm seeing at senior levels on boats has changed dramatically and that's where that, that has all come from because slowly the rest of the sport male whatever female to get the confidence in that genders no longer um, matters about what your role is on the boat and um, you know I noticed that you sort of uh, have have asked a bit about you know what skills and encouraging girls into the sport and I mm. think my only comment there would be that I think it's important whether you're a, a big guy a small guy a big girl a small girl or whatever or whether you like to be on deck and tough it out or whether you like to be down below the important thing is to identify your skill set and go with it so you know if you're not a strong person don't choose a job don't try and pursue a a job on board that is focused on strength if you don't like sitting down below and looking at a computer don't pursue a job as a navigator you know I think it's about identifying the skills that you're good at because you know there's it's um because the mindset you know Australia's sport obsessed everyone's brought up to be very competitive everyone loves to win and so mm. that, the natural thing is that that they will choose the best person for the job whether it's a man or a woman, and that's why you've got to make sure you're that best person for the job, if you see what I mean there. Yeah, yeah. no, that, so, that's you know, an incredible. Choose, choose a role yeah. that's not gender-specific um, or, or strength-related if it's a boy-girl thing or, you know, just or it's if, you've, if you're not great at IT, then probably, you know, it's, it's, it's about identifying your skill set and where, it's, it, where you can excel. Just uh, just hopping back to some of the previous comments that you made around um, studying, yeah. and I know you've you're, uh, you've done law and you've done meteorology. Uh, the figures are showing that young women are leaving the sport to pursue their studies and careers and not returning. Yeah, I think I think you might find that some of them, the, the, it's men and women. You know, just because, and and I think. This was well, certainly when I was head of the Women's Forum at World Sailing, we discussed this a lot, and um, we discussed it specific to to women. But I, I think that you know when we did the surveys, it it, it kind of seemed to be related to both genders. But um, specifically for women, I think you know once you get to the end of the school and you start pursuing uni, you're no longer under your parents' umbrella, and that's you know certainly that's the case financially. So, and you know, a lot of people financially couldn't keep going with it. Um, also, you just, um, you know, when you're at school, your life's a bit more one-dimensional. Once you get to uni, there are so many things going on. There's so many opportunities. The world's out there, travel, you know. Um, I think that level of independence might mean that you just move away a little bit, bit, bit from it. Um, uh, there's no doubt that uh, sailing and study, I mean, I did a lot of my university when I was not sailing at a really intense level. So, um, so uh, I mean, I was just, I finished my uni when I was in, the, in I, I think I did my last year of uni when I was my first year of 18 footers. And um, so, look, I, I think it's a hard ask to combine, you know, the, the level of intensity of university now, sailing, everything. <laughs> you know, it's like when, you know, growing up in the 70s and 80s, we, could, we were told we could, as a woman, you were told you could have it all. But I think we've all learned 
But um, I think it's not about having it all. It's about having most of it, but just not all every minute. No. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. Well, look, so you've been an advocate for change for such a long time. Have you have you seen changes now? I've seen, uh, uh, absolutely, as I mentioned before, uh, you know, seeing mm. the women, the percentage of women on board is totally different. Uh, the way they're, the way everybody's, you know, whether it's twilight sailing, Sunday sailing, Sydney Hobart, you know, it's 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 a totally different landscape, and that's thanks to everybody over so many decades because um you know I had my role models too when I went in and and I looked to them um you know so the people that go before you are the ones you look towards and um we're lucky enough to have had all of those I think the only one of the things that just drives me crazy and every time I look at the the broad teats I like I just wish the media would focus more on women's sport for example right now at this uh crisis that we've got economically I haven't seen one article focusing on all the professional women in sport that have lost their jobs. You know, it's uh, it's all about you, you look at look at the various broadsheets. Every single article, there's, there's the only time an article comes up about a woman is if it's some kind of feature article about I don't know Correct. they're sick or something. You know, swimmers yeah. sick. Um, you, you know, the changing the way the media views women's sport. And I know they go, isn't it? It's almost like everyone thinks, tick, we've done it now because the Matildas get in the the news occasionally and women's rugby league. But the the sport is, uh, women's sport is so diverse. It brings so much to the table. Our percentage of medals that we get at the Olympics, you know, is, is, is exceptional. And, and the whole mindset, whoever's at those news, those in the media, you know, need to understand that there's 50% of us out here in Australia that want to read about 50% of the people playing sport. And there doesn't seem to be that controversy around women in sport, you know, like there are with men in sport. No. <laughs> um, so the majority of them are good, positive role models Absolutely. with news stories as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. They're wonderful role mm. models. And, mm. um, you know, just getting them to the forefront of the media is just work in progress and... There's such, been such small traction in that sphere. I mean, if you look at them today, just open up the newspaper and you'll be searching long and hard for an article on a woman, unless the Australian Open comes around and they'll discuss something about Serena Williams. Definitely, definitely. Totally agree there. There's room for improvement there. So outside of sailing, I know you've got a young family. So what do you enjoy doing? Uh, oh, look, you know what? I, Sydney is just such a great place to, I mean, one of the things in this thing at the moment is is um, leaving aside the economic and health consequences is uh, the social side. I love uh, going to the club on uh, the Seaway or Lane Cove or whichever club I'm sailing from. Um, to twi- you know, twilight sailing, Sunday sailing, just getting out on the water. Um, with the children, we, we we play quite a lot of tennis and um, and I golf. I like golf too. And uh, look, just enjoying the beach and the outdoors is um, our favourite thing. Just shooting breeze, hanging out, mm. you know, mm. and travel. You know, love the road trips out to the country, out to a friend's farm at um, out in the uh, central west. Uh, going on holidays. <laughs> just and, a normal and, family. Yeah, look, that that's amazing. And has any of your um, children expressed interest in going sailing? Well, look, <laughs> so, yeah, I think they probably get 
Well, they do look they do and they love coming on the boat and uh they're at a different stage in their life probably similar to what i was um with school sport tennis netball um yep. there's so much so many things on offer at the moment that um that they'll they know they know where the club is and they only have to put up their hand and they know i'm right they're right behind them the day they decide to 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 go sailing competitively or if they ever just want to come out sailing on the boats but you know they live live eat and breathe sailing around the dinner table so I think yeah. they probably get enough of it just <laughs> by virtue of that right at the moment oh look little, Adrian so. it's it, yeah it, it's been wonderful chatting with you and um, are there any last words you would like to share oh know? look I, you know I'm just obviously anxious for everyone in the sailing community to to uh, get out of back out on the water as they can and you know hope that this hasn't been too um this what's happened in the last couple of months hasn't caused too much um sadness and and devastation but um you know I I know that you know that it'll be so fabulous and we'll appreciate more um so much what we had when we get together at regattas and we're able to hang out together and chat and and um, meet socially and, and enjoy our time out on the water. So, and I just hope for the marine industry that we can all recover again um, and everyone can, can begin to get back on their feet. Yeah, look, totally agree there. Mm. And, um, you know, I think one, one of the things I take away from sailing is resilience. Yes. So overcoming obstacles, and I'm pretty sure that, um, you know, the industry will bounce back yes. uh, very um very well from this yeah (laughs) (laughs) oh look thanks thanks so much really enjoyed this chat and uh, have a lovely afternoon Uh, stay safe and well thank you for your time okay bye adrian thanks for listening today and if you would like to find out more please visit our facebook page sailing women's network australia you can also contact us via our website sailingwomensnetwork.com.au Have a great day.